News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You like to live to be 100 years old. It would really depend on your quality of life, wouldn't it? So what do we know about the people who do live to that marker? Most importantly, what can we learn from them? What can we take away from that? Well, let's talk to someone who has studied this. Karen Modig is an associate professor of epidemiology at the Karolinska Institute and joins us now. Thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. So do many people live to be 100? Are more people living to be 100? Um, no and yes to that answer. I mean, uh, not many. It's still around, you know, two, two to three percent of each birth cohort, at least in Sweden, uh, and probably similar uh, in your country that make it to age 100. But this proportion is increasing uh, quite quickly with time now. Yeah. Oh, okay. And so what did you study? Because you studied the people who, who live long, right? Yes, I do in many different ways. Um, but in the specific study of interest now, uh, we had the chance to go back to old data where people gave a blood tests uh, when they were aged 60 to 70. And then we uh, could link uh, these uh, data to prospectively information about these people in terms of, of mortality and, and other things uh, through over the years. So that made us um, able to uh, compare uh, the same people over time. Uh, So we looked at their blood tests when they were 60 and we followed them prospectively with regards to mortality. And the question we had was that, is it possible to observe differences already at ages 60 or 70 in your biomarker profiles for people that eventually become very old compared to those who don't. And what did you find? We found that we could. (laughs) Um, And I mean, the other option would be that it would be pure chance uh, whether you become as old as 100 uh, or that something later in life decides. But here we could observe differences already this early on. Uh, and especially we found differences in biomarkers related to metabolic function, uh, metabolic markers, uh, such as inflammation, uh, nutrition, and also alcohol, what we at least uh, um, hypothesize is, is related to alcohol consumption, liver function. Okay, so then, Karen, people want to know what markers markers showed up that made a difference for people making it to the age of 100? Right. Uh, I mean, to conclude, we could say that lower levels of glucose, which is your your blood sugar, seems to matter a lot, creatinine and uric acid uh, were associated with a greater chance of becoming a centenarian, whereas actually um, higher levels compared to or normal levels of cholesterol uh, or higher were better in comparison to, to low levels of total cholesterol. And this is a bit paradoxical, <laughs> uh, but it seems to be in old age, it, it seems not to be as bad to have uh, slightly elevated uh, total cholesterol in compared to, to really low, which could be an indication of, of other things in your health being not. It's interesting you mentioned inflammation because I know that's a very big thing right now, right? People being concerned Mm -hmm. about inflammation. So in what way can you, like where does that show up in the markers that you can tell that a body has more inflammation than other people? Mm 
Exactly. I mean, we can't, we can't, we couldn't study it really properly um, because many of the inflammatory markers would be those that um, you would look at on, on a quite immediate effect of. And, and since we had this long time period passed, we, we cannot say for sure uh, that the inflammation is still present and so on, so on. But for example, uric acid is such a marker that could relate to many things, but among them, uh, inflammation. Okay, so then people who live to be 100, that was 2.7%, right, of the people that you mm-hmm. looked at? In, in these birth courts, yeah. Right, okay, so they had higher levels of total cholesterol, not high yeah. cholesterol, but higher levels of cholesterol, yeah. and, and higher iron. Yes, exactly, and they had lower levels of glucose, creatinine, uric acid, and some of the liver and kidney function markers. Uh, so one can also translate it to, into that it was all, almost no person with a glucose above 6.5 that eventually become, became 100. So that's another way to translate it. Okay, cause I would imagine now that, Karen, people will, other doctors and researchers will take this and see if this is holds on a wider level. Uh, I hope so. I mean, this is one study and one cohort, and we're, we, of course, need to replicate it and follow it. Um, so I'd be happy to, to see others do this. Um, and also one should also pay attention that it, it, I mean, nowadays we have better treatments. We have, I mean, even people with these metabolic conditions survive much longer. So we should also keep it in the context of, of where it is, um, for, for these older generations. Right. It it tells you how important the glucose level there is in in these situations for later health, right? But we know that we know that having those high glucose, for instance, diabetics, that's a, that's a lot of health Mm. risk that comes with that. Yeah, it is. Mm. And as, as early as, as, you know, it, it difference is seen as early as in your 60s. Okay, so where, what are the next steps that you're going to be taking? This is fascinating research. Mm-hmm. We have an ongoing study now, which I also find fascinating in a similar setup. So for these people, we now, so I want to I explore if people make it to 100 by avoiding disease, delaying disease, or surviving disease to a higher extent. So that is also not really known, and I think all of these can play a role, but it's, it's in essence essentially different, the three um, mechanisms. So we are looking at disease onset over age in a, in a longitudinal way and see if and for which, which diseases we, we uh, can see these patterns. Okay, so you have a lot of work to do, <laughs> Dr. Mohan. I, I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us to talk about it this morning. Thank you. We appreciate your time. That's Dr. Karen Modig, who's an associate professor of epidemiology at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. Uh, fascinating research. Looking at people who lived to be 100, they had a cohort, they had about 44,000 people that they could look at, Swedes, who underwent regular health assessments, so blood profile, right? They had their blood taken. So they could start examining the blood that was taken from the ages of like 64 to 99. So people who lived to be 100, and they actually found some markers in there. They were looking at 12 blood-based biomarkers to measure things like inflammation, metabolism, liver and kidney function, like all of those things. And of the 2.7% of that group that lived to be 100, by the way, 85% of them were female, they had lower levels of glucose, 
but higher levels of cholesterol and iron. So really fascinating to think about the implications of that and the research that will come. More people are definitely going to look into that. Would you want to live to be 100? Like I said, I think it depends on your quality of life, right? If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Some people hate today. Some people absolutely hate Valentine's Day. I mean, I get it. But to me, it's not about just about your partner or like romantic love. It's about just showing love to everybody. Everybody in my house got chocolates for Valentine's Day. So that's just me. We're going to talk about this with Scott Chance this morning. Scott, how are you on this issue? Yeah, it may come as, uh, I'm assuming it's going to come as no surprise to you, Simi, that I love love. I'm like, uh, I love to like do a romantic thing and really want to believe in love and, you know, share in the, I like that there's the sort of platonic, hey, everyone in my household gets chocolates and stuff. But I also really like the, oh my gosh, fairy tale, romantic story, romantic comedy story where people are just going all in on it. But I also know that a lot of people- They don't like it. Don't like that. Yeah, absolutely. Despite the fact that Valentine's Day is growing, spending on Valentine's Day is up like 30% from last year. It's like multi-billion dollar industry. There's an anti- anti-Valentine's Day movement that is growing year over year. And this is coming from, this may be no surprise to you, the youth, the Gen Z, the people who are um, just, I think, more open to different sort of ideas about what Valentine's Day or any holiday must be mean? I think with every younger generation, there is a resistance, a pushback, uh, and it's just natural to whatever the previous generation did or loves. Totally. Yeah. And we've seen this with things like, uh, you may have seen this last year, various zoos had uh, opportunities where you could like name a cockroach after your ex, right? And there were, um, yeah, like I think the SPCA had something where you could uh, ad- like pay to have a dog or a cat that was about to be neutered. You could have that cat named after your ex and then that cat would then be neutered and it would be like symbolic, you know, cat that was going to be neutered anyway. You know, there's things like the t-shirts that you can buy on, on Etsy. They say like, love is in the air. Don't breathe. You know, like snarky things (laughs) like that. Right. Um, there's Galentine's day where girls get together and, you know, they celebrate with their friends instead. There is a cool thing that a bunch of schools are starting to do in the States where they're deleting Instagram. Like teenagers are starting to do this where they delete Instagram for like a week. Maybe from, you know, from Monday until Friday of this week so that they don't see any of the Valentine's Day posts of couples who are like sharing and they're just like, you know what? I don't want to see that. I don't need to see that. Whether it's just I don't like it or they recognize that it's going to make them feel not not enough, you know, so there is some positive angle to that, some responsibility that kids are like, you know what? I I recognize that that's not for me, so I'm just not going to expose myself to it. In some way, though, all of this is still kind of marking Valentine's Day. You're absolutely right. Do you remember in high school, did you still do this? I might be dating myself when there were flower sales on Valentine's Day, oh, whether yeah. it was carnations, sometimes roses, but usually it was carnations. Yeah. So at my high school, you could pay to have student council yes. deliver a yes. rose 
to, to someone. someone else. Yes. And everybody, when so, when the student council would show up at, like, at oh, your classroom, who's, who's it going to be? Like who's it from? Who's the admirer? My friends and I would send them to each yeah. other just so that we could have one, which is nice. Yeah. And that was always sort of fun and exciting. And, you know, there are positive things about it. The other thing we did, I was on student council at my high school. We got a bunch of paper hearts you know, and wrote. Why am I not surprised that you were on student council? Actually, I was the student body president. <laughs> of course you were. Uh, we would write every single student in the school's name on a heart, every single one, and then tape them up on the walls around the school. And then for a week, it would be like, oh, you kind of walk around the school and try to find your heart. And then you could take it down and put it up with your friends or whatever. It was just a fun thing that we did to try to make everybody included. Because, yeah, even though some people aren't with it, I mean, the the spending is up. People are doing things for Valentine's Day. Do you want to know what the top things that people are going to be doing for dates tonight are? Is it going out for dinner? Going out for dinner is on the list, but it's a combination of going out for dinner, movies, mm, mini nice. golf, and semi axe throwing has is a big I one for go dates. Axe throwing. Yeah, it's really fun. You've never done it, hey? No. It's I'd really like to fun. try it. It's I'd fun. I'd like to try this. I think what's great about it is it's kind of low pressure. You know, you can do it for half an hour and then like, hey, let's go get a drink or something. You know, it's kind of it's like usually novel. People haven't done it together or like in your, your case, people haven't done it. So there's that. That's one of the things people are doing uh, tonight. And um, yeah, when we're talking about the school thing, Simi, last night I made 50 <laughs> Valentine's Day bags. You were Adorable. talking about this with John Strait. Yes. Yeah. In both of my daughter's classes, I have one in preschool and one in second grade. Uh, every student gets one. Absolutely. Right. Love so that. we went through and had to make sure that everything was written out. There had to be like boy ones and girl ones and and, you know, uh, we have to make sure that there's the same amount of chocolates in each one. Everything is labeled the way it was. So I was very organized yesterday, had like the assembly line going. And um, may, yeah, so two classrooms worth of I Valentine's Day that. bags. You know, I, at the time, I don't think I appreciated that. But now listening to you, now that my kids are in their, you know, mid 20s, I, I kind of miss that. You know what? And I was dreading doing it. And it actually ended That's up being fun. quite fun. It's you so know? sweet. It to see really how excited was. kids get about that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, my girls, they were busy after school yesterday making Valentine's Day cookies with their Nona. And that was, you know, that gave me the time to do the bags because it would have been a disaster with the kids. Scott, you've given us a lot of reasons to appreciate this day it, it's aside from like that yes. romantic love. Don't upset. Like if you don't have that partner, I understand you wish you did. And so you're going to you know, be negative about Valentine's Day. But there's a lot of other reasons to appreciate this. Day. Absolutely. Like you said, family. If it, yeah. If it's an excuse to do something with your family, like make cookies, I am all for that. Absolutely. And I will eat those cookies today <laughs> when I get home. And I will appreciate that. Thank <laughs> you for that. Scott. Sure thing. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, we are checking in with Vaughn Palmer for the Vancouver Sun this morning. And you know what? Big development in provincial politics. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. No, the development isn't Valentine's Day, actually, although there's lots of love in the BC political arena, as you know. <laughs> is there, though? You're being yes, sarcastic. Yes, You're yes, being no, sarcastic. They love each other. That's just like professional wrestling what goes on in the house. You know, they scream at each other and all that stuff. Uh, but one of the veteran members of the legislature, Mike Dion. He's been an MLA continuously for 30 years, so uh, that puts him in rare company. Uh, Dion, member for one of the Abbotsford Ridings, press conference at 11 o'clock this morning at the legislature buildings. Here's a nice touch, Simmy. He says he'll only take questions from people that are actually there. 
Oh, so this isn't this isn't one of those virtual events where you have to phone them up afterward or get online or try to cover it on social media. You actually have to be there. I have to go into the legislature buildings this morning. Well, my office is next door, so I'll go in anyway. But uh, it's kind of a nice touch to find out what the news is. You got to be there. So this is Mike DeYoung, traditional member of the BC legislature, old-fashioned guy, remembers what politics was like before we had such wonders as social media. So there we go. <laughs> so what what do we think he's going to announce here? Well, uh, I think he's going to announce that he's not running again in the fall election. That he is retiring from provincial politics, that's widely expected. He's been mulling this for a while. And after 30 years uh, in the BC political arena, he's done his service to the public. Uh, The the question that I think a lot of people will be asking, Simi, however, is, is he going to run federally? Now, DeYoung got into trouble last year with Kevin Falcon when he pretty much endorsed Pierre Polyev. Uh, Falcon's rule is that in order to keep the two bits of the coalition together, you don't get involved in federal politics because some BC United supporters, who's then BC Liberals, uh, some of those people support the federal Liberal Party, they vote for them, and some of those people vote for the federal Conservatives. But anyway, Young went ahead and endorsed Polyev, and ever since then there's been speculation that he's going to be one of those provincial politicians that Polyev is recruiting to run for uh, his party federally in the next election. So there's the question, will he? Um, In the back of my mind, I also have that DeYoung, uh, a couple of years ago now, two or three years ago, Simi married a woman from France and they have a place in France. So what do you do really? Do you retire to your place in France? Or do you go to Ottawa? What a tough call. Mm, that, that is, is. tough. <laughs> I, I, I'll I be teasing him about that, as you can imagine. I'm curious, though, like if he's continuing his political career, why he wouldn't have made the announcement in Abbotsford, right? Which is the place that has elected him for the past 30 years. <clears throat> That's a good question. But, you know, this, the, one of the reasons it's taken DM a while is there was speculation that one of the incumbent conservatives who's a longtime federal MP from that region, Ed Fast, might have been thinking of retiring. Uh, I don't know if he's made a final call, but if DeYoung is running federally, he's not going to go up against an incumbent conservative MP. But there's a seat uh, on the edge of where DeYoung represents, uh, Langley-Cloverdale, federal seat represented by the federal liberals right now. The conservatives think they can take that seat, and they might well be looking for a star candidate to run there, somebody well-known in the Valley, and that might be where mm. DeYoung is being recruited for. But I guess we'll find out this morning. As I said, I think everyone's quite certain that he's leaving the provincial political arena. A loss to BC United. He's one of their uh, senior, more experienced members. And the other thing to say about Dion is he's quite well liked at the legislature. He's, you know, he's a little like Mike Farnworth. Uh, yeah. You know, you can disagree with Farnworth on his policies, but BC United people, opposition people like him because he's genial. He's outgoing, very funny. 
he doesn't he doesn't carry the exchanges the professional wrestling type exchanges in question period outside the house de young is like that in fact i think the most genial time we've had at the legislature in my time in the last 20 years was when the two mics farnworth and de young were their respective house leaders for their party uh, they managed to lower the temperature outside the house. Um, you know, question period yeah. is what it is. But outside the house, you do want uh, people who've got some perspective on politics. And I would say both those guys do. Oh, that, that's actually good to hear. We, know, we don't hear enough stories like that. But I also remember the fact that Mike DeYoung's arrival into provincial politics was a an earthquake in BC yes. politics when he defeated Grace McCarthy yes. in that election and people could not believe where had this kid come from? Yes, uh, he was very young in those days, I think in his early 30s, a lawyer uh, running for the BC Liberals, uh, 1993. Uh, the riding was then known as Matt Squee. Uh, Grace McCarthy was trying to revive the Social Credit Party. She ran in that riding after a SoCred MLA stepped down to make way for her. And DeYoung won the seat by about less than 50 votes. I think it was a very close election, a close night. But, Simi, you're right, historic, because... It kind of signaled the changing of the yes. guard in BC politics. Social credit went away after that. The BC Liberals became the vehicle for center-right voters in the province and went on to win, uh, what, four of the last seven elections, I think. Uh, so they've done fairly well, even though they've sure. changed their name because uh, the leader of the BC United, Kevin Falcon, says people were confused about the name. So confused, they kept electing them to government. <laughs> so that's just my cheap shot. I still love that joke. <laughs> I still love that joke. A couple more things we're going to check on with Vaughn Palmer this morning. So Vaughn, this this Richmond City Council debate over this uh, you know, safe consumption site has seemingly moved upwards to the premier oh, yeah. level. It's been upgraded to... David Eby's level, you know, there was a huge furor at the council out there and a divisive issue. Do you want a safe injection site in your municipality? And I can't entirely blame people who've been following what happens in other places with safe injection sites. And I don't want any this thing anywhere near where I live, but there's a furor there. The premier gets asked about it yesterday. And you know, a premier could have said, um, this is an issue for Richmond Council to sort out, and we'll see if they apply to the province or the health region after the fact for a safe injection site, but that's not what he said. What he said was um, that his understanding is this is not what is immediately needed in that city, and the health region is looking into why this was brought forward at this time. Well, this time for the Premier, Simi, is not February. It's not some afternoon, uh, mid-month. It is election year that this is being brought forward. And in the back of his mind, he wants to know, why is this issue coming forward and dividing Richmond in a provincial election year? Because <clears throat> in 2020... Richmond had been BC Liberal territory for a long time, but in 2020, the new de Democrats took three of the Richmond seats, three of the four seats. And you can bet, 
David Eby does not want any backlash to his MLAs in Richmond with anyone out there suspecting that if a safe injection site is going to be imposed on Richmond, the provincial government is going to have something to do with it. So this is David Eby distancing himself very quickly from that issue. That is so interesting. Okay, and let's talk about uh, some uh, provincial polling that's been done here, because recently the polls, I'm sure the NDP have been pretty happy about them. Maybe not all of them. NDP supporters can't stop telling you about how wonderful the polls are these days. Uh, opposition parties are divided. David Eby's got a high approval rating. He's uh, cruising for re-election. Don't people yeah, learn anything, Vaughn? Why do they? Don't they? Are they afraid of jinxing things? Don't they learn? <laughs> it could be. Yeah. No. No. That's true. Uh, yeah, because I mean, we all know the polls never change, right? They say the same thing exactly. month, after month after month. And if they did, uh, Adrian Dix would be Premier of British Columbia. So. Um, this one they won't like because Angus Reid, who's independent polling foundation now, doesn't work for political parties, but pays close attention to the issues, decided to go out and poll on this provincial government idea that's out there. We've talked about it a few times of changing the Land Act to move the province to joint management of crown land with indigenous nations on a consent basis. So Reid goes out, asks the public, uh, well, none of the answers are good news for the government. The first thing people say is it sounds like a pretty important issue to them, but the government has told them next to nothing about it. So most of them say, I don't know where this came from. Uh, Many, many people tell the pollsters, you know what, it looks like a rush job to me. I mean, they haven't even told me what's in it, why they're doing it, and they're ramming it through this spring in the legislature. Get down to the details. A lot of people are suspicious that this would be a veto for First Nations, and not many of them support that idea, only less than 20%. And a lot of people say they think this is the sort of thing that should go to a referendum. Well, I mean, Australians put this question to Australians about just having some kind of a commission in Parliament that would uh, not even approve things, but kind of survey things from the point of view of the Australian Aborigines and Australians got their backs up and they voted it down. I think it'd be a very dangerous thing to put to a referendum here in BC. And I don't think it would be one that's good for any aspect of our politics. But the poll, when you look at it, the government's got an enormous selling job on this, Simi. And if uh, the same mindset that led David Eby to run for cover on the safe supply issue in Richmond is working, I wonder if somebody in the provincial ministry in the premier's office is not going to say, you know what, why are we rushing this thing through this spring? Wouldn't it be better if we just said we need to consult some more, need to get the public more involved and put it off till after the election? Yeah, you don't want this becoming an election issue because I feel like it's just going to cause so many problems. Look, I mean, Nathan Cullen, the minister in charge, did acknowledge two things. First, he came out and said he wished he'd been more proactive at explaining to people why this is happening and what it leads to. He didn't even put out a news release, right? So that's the first thing. The second thing he said was, you know, this is important. He said, when when we, provincial government, screw something up like this, the backlash doesn't just come to the government, well, exactly deserves it and should get it. It goes to Indigenous people. People take it out on the Indigenous nations, even though it's not their idea that's pushing this. It's the provincial government 
that went out that didn't advertise this, that didn't explain itself. So, yeah, I mean, I think if the government is sitting down looking at this thing and going, how can we lower the temperature? One thing they could do is say, you know what? This needs more study. We're on a tight time frame this spring. And uh, let's do some more consultation and take it up after people have voted. Is there that recognition, though, Vaughn? Do no. you get that sense that with the pushback in the last couple of weeks, they realize that, oh, geez, maybe we should, you know, slow this you know, down a bit? I talked to Colin. He said, no, 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 it's going ahead. You know, uh, we still think we can get it done this spring. Uh, they've got the votes. That's not the issue, right? They've got the MLAs. The question is, if they push it through quickly in the face of what this poll tells us about the lack of public sympathy and awareness, it's going to create a bad feeling around an issue that, you know, the more united we can be on this thing, the better. And as I said, I think Indigenous nations rightfully feel they've been victimized by a government that has completely mishandled the issue up to this point. And, you know, it's it, the government should take the heat for backing off, but they should also say, hey, we realized we, we went too fast on this. We didn't bring the public along with us, and we've got to do that work. And that may take some time. All right, Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. That is Vaughn Palmer there from the Vancouver Sun. As always, if you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, as if we don't have enough to worry about in the world already, now apparently I have to worry about super bed bugs. Thanks a lot, Scott Schantz. Yeah, hey, I just want to say don't shoot the messenger, okay? <laughs> I didn't bring the super bed bugs here. I haven't traveled in a long time. But uh, unfortunately, you know how we there's been lots of talk about antibiotics, and as we use antibiotics, we become resistant yes. to antibiotics, right? Yes. The same thing has apparently been happening with pesticides, and as a result, bed bugs are growing immune to certain pesticides and are growing stronger and morphing into a super bed bug. I saw this article that was saying super bed bugs are here. They're coming. Normally they live in warmer climates, but they're moving north. And I panicked because that's what I do. Uh, so I got in touch with Richard Naylor. He's an entomologist and is an expert in bed bugs. And I would like to say that there are people, I'm glad that there are people who make their expertise bed bugs so that I don't, I don't have to do it. And I asked him about this, about this apparent new strain of super bed bugs. I mean, there's been tons in the media recently. Um, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say there's a new strain. There's something that's changing all the time. The more we sort of subject them to uh, different chemicals, different insecticides, the more they adapt. You know, we, we tend to, if you apply, it's usually pyrethroid insecticides we use. If you apply an insecticide and knock out most of them, the ones that survive uh, are just a little bit different, just a little bit more resistant. And those are the ones that run off and set up a new infestation. And so they're just a little bit different from from the original population. And over time, we gradually change them. Uh, and, and in different countries, applying different chemicals, they're they're gradually evolving in slightly different ways. Um, so that so there's not it's not like one new strain pops up, but like a gradually evolving uh, species cha- changing in different parts of the world steadily. Yeah, they're changing into a like a or evolving to be uh, harder to treat. And I think people are kind of worried that bed bugs are going to to end up almost like untreatable or something that we're just going to have to live with as opposed to something that we can eliminate. Uh, is that is that a fear that you can relate to? Do you think that's a possibility? Um, so I think in the in the 
thirties and forties, we had there were really a, a lot more bed bugs. You know, there, there were reports that every house in London had bed bugs. So, that, so, that, so they're in our not too distant uh, history. Uh, they've been very much more common, and we had about fifty years where uh, we we uh, introduced some very potent insecticides, DDT being one, but there was a uh, a range of them, uh, and we almost wiped them out. And for for yeah, for about fifty years, we hardly saw any, uh, and and. In the, over the last two decades, really, we've gradually reduced the range of chemicals that we're prepared to spray around our beds. You know, we're, we're a bit more cautious about the, uh, the impact of these things on our health and the, and the environment. And so we've reduced the range of chemicals that we are prepared to spray around. Uh, and, and we're kind of overusing the few chemicals that we have left, which is, which is what's caused resistance to the, the, primarily the pyrethroids. Um, uh, and, and, so and so we're seeing bed bugs are, are, gen, are gradually increasing. That's true, and and really the I, I, I don't think it's all doom and gloom. There's there's a lot of uh, um, investment in within the kind of pest management industry to find uh, new solutions for them, but they tend to not be like what's the next thing to spray. They're more uh, more diverse range of traps. There's traps, uh, kind of pitfall traps and things that fit around the bed legs. There's a, a kind of a broad range of different options. Uh, and bed designers, bed, bed design is a huge thing. Some, bed, some beds are very difficult for bed bugs to infest. Kind of frame beds with metal legs are very difficult for bed bugs to climb into. Um, so you, you can do a lot with just choosing your beds carefully. Yeah. Okay. So a bit of a like sort of a measure of um, patience and and rationality as we sort of try to tackle this exactly, problem. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I appreciate yeah. that. You know, because it's very easy for I think if you know you've ever had to deal with bed bugs, it can be really like psychologically uh, traumatizing as well as Definitely. just you know yeah. having to live with them. You mentioned the like uh, bed with metal legs, which is something that I hadn't heard before. Are there other things that a person can do to sort of minimize their risk? You know, there's a lot of condos, a lot of old buildings here in Vancouver, and I've heard that you know if they're in one unit in a building, you know, it's really hard to get rid of them because they just go over to another That's unit it, yeah. and then they're they very can come good back. At splitting through buildings, yeah, yeah. So yeah, uh, isolating the bed is good. So if you can't, if you if you've got a bed with metal legs, then you don't need to do much more to stop them climbing in because they just can't climb up shiny surfaces. Their feet just don't work on shiny. So that's their kind of Achilles heel, really. And you can get uh, you can get dishes that fit under the bed legs. You can get uh, sticky tapes that go around the bed legs. So there's a lot you can do to isolate your bed. So you, you can't stop them coming into your condo necessarily, but you can stop them climbing into your bed. And of course, there might be the odd one that manages to climb on with your clothes. But if you if you keep or or your if your you know your blankets are touching the floor overnight, um, then you there's always a possibility of one climbing up. But the, the more you can do to make it difficult for them to spread around, the easier it is to beat them. Yeah. yeah, and you hear, like I've heard people suggest that, you know, anytime they come home from a vacation, they, you know, clean out their suitcases and, and do laundry and that type of thing. Is, is that something that yeah. you have seen, like people bring yeah, yeah, bed bugs home on, on vacation? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the, you can you can avoid bringing them home by not like the, really the worst thing you can do when you're when you're uh, staying in a hotel is to uh, spread all your belongings, o- open your bag on the bed and spread your belongings out on the bed. Of- often there's two beds in the same room and people use one of the beds for laying out their clothes, and laying out their suitcase. But but that's the best way of, of encouraging a bed bug to come out that night and then crawl in there for somewhere to hide they're not deliberately trying to come home with you they're just looking for a good good little crevice to squeeze into somewhere near where they can feed 
So if you provide them lots of potential hiding places, so yeah, keep, keeping your belongings off the beds and away from the beds, you know, at least a meter from the beds, ideally. Uh, if, they, if they provide a luggage rack, use the luggage rack. If, you, if you're tra- traveling with a rucksack, you're much more susceptible to bed bugs because they've got lots of zips and pockets and places to hide. But if you have these hard shell suitcases with wheels, it's more difficult for a bed bug to climb onto or climb inside. Right. Um, so these kind of strategies are for stopping bringing them home with you. Richard Naylor, he's an entomologist specializing in bed bugs. And I like that there is some practical thinking there, Simi. Like, yes, they are adapting, but, you know, that's they've always been adapting. Just get metal legs on your bed, plastic hard shell suitcase, and don't put it on that second bed in the bedroom when you travel. Right. This was all creepy and gross, and I'm not sure how romantic it was for Valentine's Day. <laughs> well, we already established that not everybody loves Valentine's true, true. Day. It so, was useful. Information because you're right. Like that second bed, I think a lot oh, of do people that. do that. Yeah, huge information there. And I travel with a backpack, not anymore. Right. I love that he said rucksack. So that's a backpack. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. Get a hard shell suitcase. I'm going to put all of this into use the next time I travel. I do have a hard shell suitcase, so I did feel a little bit better when he said that. Yeah, see, I don't. So that's, I'm, I count myself lucky. I used to leave my suitcase in the garage for like two days before bringing it in. Oh, that's not a bad idea, though. That's two, right? Yeah, that's yeah. Okay. All right. And I'm one of those people who unpacks right away, and that might not be a good thing. Right. Well, no, he, like unpack right away if you're going to wash everything. Yeah, but that's if what you're going to leave it outside. Yeah, I take that, it. Everything goes in the wash when yeah, I come home. Yeah, absolutely. That's okay. the way to go. All right. This was very useful. Thank you An very much for that, Scott. of prevention for a Thank pound of cure. You. I like that. That is our Scott Shans with great advice on preventing those super bed bugs from getting a hold at your house. This is Mornings with Simi. I thought it was a mistake when I saw this in the news, but no, this happened. The state of Oregon this week confirmed a case of the bubonic plague. Yes, the plague. First time in years that they have seen this. And this is the plague that killed nearly 200 million people in just a few years back in the 14th century. And yes, it is still around. So obviously, we wanted to learn more about this. So joining us now is Dr. Jimmy Whitworth, Professor of International Public Health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Dr. Whitworth, thank you for being here. It's a pleasure. Thank you. How prevalent is the bubonic plague these days? Well, in, in the U.S., it uh, certainly occurs. It's, it's not common in humans. There's maybe a handful of cases every year, but it persists in the wildlife population in the southwest of the states. But, of course, most of the cases in the world these days are in Africa and the Democratic Republic of Congo and Madagascar are the two big hotspots in the world. And why is that? Well, um, once you have um, a cycle of this bacteria living in usually uh, small rodents in uh, forested areas, certainly in rural areas, then that natural cycle can just persist. So once that's established, then it, it tends just to remain in the population there. And so how does it happen that it goes, in what cases does it jump from the animals to humans as it, I guess it did in this case? Yeah, I mean, that doesn't happen very often. So it's normally a disease that occurs in, in small rodents. But humans can get affected um, usually um, by some happenstance. Um, the, 
it's transmitted by infected fleas. So if you have, say, a, um, a squirrel that's infected with, with plague, then fleas bite the squirrel. Uh, they then jump onto another squirrel and bite that squirrel, and that squirrel will become infected. If a, a human, perhaps a hunting or something like that, comes into contact with an infected squirrel, then those fleas could jump onto a human and bite them. And that's the sort of most common way in which it gets transmitted to humans. Right, because I think in this case they believe it came from the cat. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So if you have uh, pets that have been outside and perhaps interacting with wildlife, they can get uh, the fleas jumping onto them and biting them. Um, and then if that flea then comes into the house uh, with the cat, then that flea can jump onto a human. Okay, and what do we know about the plague at this point, Dr. Warworth? Like, how has it changed? Is it still the same version that we saw hundreds of years ago? Has it mutated? Has it adapted? There's some suspicion that it may have adapted, but it's pretty difficult because you have to rely on um, specimens that are many hundreds of years old to look at it. It looks like it may have become perhaps a bit less virulent than than it used to be, so uh, less serious and, and less likely to spread between humans. And is this something that we still need to be concerned about, the fact that we can't completely eradicate it? Well, we certainly need to be accepting of the fact that um, there's no way that you can um, uh, get rid of all the infected uh, mammals that there are living out in, in the wild. Um, we need to respect the fact that we, we can't control nature in that way and recognize that this is a serious disease um, and be alert and ready for it. I was just looking this up um, when before you called me because I didn't know, but it's been a notifiable disease in Canada since the 1930s. And um, indeed, there's only been one case ever reported in Canada. Oh, well, that's good. That offers me so some comfort. <laughs> <laughs> it does mean that, uh, you know, the, the, the public health authorities in Canada take this seriously. This is a serious disease. It could occur. Um, it's not very likely. And these days, um, as long as it's recognized quickly and people get treatment quickly, then uh, they're likely to recover and to recover fully. So it's, it's sensitive to many antibiotics, so you're able to, to treat it when you recognize it. Okay, so that's good. So I was going to ask you, Dr. Worth, what does it do to the body? What, how, what does the plague do? Well, um, when you first get infected with it, you get um, uh, fever, headache, feeling tremendously weak. So um, you feel terrible if you've, if you've got plague, but it's pretty nonspecific to start with. The, 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 the classic features are that you get these painful swollen lymph nodes and they can um, actually turn into abscesses and that's how you recognize. Those are in your, in your groin or in your armpit, those sort of places. Um, and so that's the classic sign that you look for. Okay, but it sounds like we have a handle on this, that the world is still, you know, very fearful of this, and so we do react accordingly when a case comes up. 
Yeah, that's right. That's right. So we need to be aware that it's it's a possibility, particularly in in rural areas. Now, what I've described there is the bubonic plague, which is perhaps four out of every five cases of plague that you see. Just occasionally you can get more serious forms. One's called septicemic plague, where it's actually in the bloodstream and and circulating around. And the other is pneumonic plague, and that's when it causes a severe acute uh, pneumonia-like illness as well. And that's the one that is really worrying because that can spread directly from person to person just from coughing um, and doesn't need to involve fleas at all. Right, but that's a much rarer case. That's much rarer to happen. That's a rarer. It's a rarer thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some of the big um, outbreaks we've had in recent years in Madagascar, for example, uh, have been of pneumonic plague. And the big outbreaks that you described at the beginning of this piece um, in in the Middle Ages in Europe. They were pneumonic plague mostly, so it was people coughing and passing it from one person directly to another. And so we don't see nearly the cases of those anymore? No, we, we tend not to. Uh, as I say, most of the cases that we see are this bubonic plague, which is spread by, um, by fleas. Okay, well, that's good. I'm, I'm, I'm reassured somewhat, Dr. Whitworth, so thank you for your time this morning. <laughs> that's okay. It's a pleasure. That's Dr. Jimmy Whitworth, Professor of International Public Health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. This is Mornings with Simi. Although I've had a few people actually email me this morning thanking us for talking about bedbugs and the bubonic plague on Valentine's Day. Uh, and no, they weren't being sarcastic. They were serious. One person actually wrote me and said, this is my kind of Valentine's Day content. Uh, you know, I have to say, though, even though I got those emails, we are going to talk a little about love because come on, a little balance here. How about a story when love has also inspired a couple to do good to help others? We can celebrate that a little, can't we? Because we're going to. I would like to introduce you to Lindsay and Elizabeth Gordon. They are founders of UBC's Award for Future Health Professionals, and they also have a bit of a love story. So good morning to Lindsay and Elizabeth. Thank you for being here. Good morning. Uh, Good morning, Simi. Now, first off, I would like to hear the love story. So who's going to tell it? Uh, You start. I'll I'll start. Um, Okay. I was a... um, student high school student in England in 1970 planning on going to university and I was fortunate enough to get a bursary that allowed me to study at UBC and so for me um, it was an opportunity to see the world I'd certainly never traveled outside of Europe uh, get an education and uh, ski. I, I've always loved to ski. And I learned that there was this new mountain called uh, Whistler. And that's what brought me to to Canada. And I was uh, staying at Totem Park Residences at UBC. And in 1972, um, met uh, Liz. She Her parents were working in Africa at the time. Uh, So we met in 1972, and my original plan had been to return to England after getting my degree, 
but I loved uh, so much about Canada and Liz in particular. I uh, decided to stay. We got married in 74 when we were both 22. And uh, here we are 50 years later. We celebrate our 50th anniversary with our four children and five grandchildren this June. Aw, first of all, early congratulations. But we've been running this contest this week where we've been asking people this question. So I'm going to ask you this as well. Was there a moment, Lindsay or Elizabeth, where either one of you went, okay, yes, I know this is the person for me? Well, I think I I probably thought it before he did. Um, I was smitten from the word go. Aw, smitten. Um, I love that you used that word. That's so cute. <laughs> it, I, I really was. Um, I There was something, the chemistry was there. However, I at Totem, I was with one of my sisters and every weekend, uh, a, a second sister, I've actually got three of them, but a second sister would come from the Convent of the Sacred Heart and spend the weekend with us. And it was always this nucleus of friends, including Lindsay, every weekend we did something together. And at Totem on Thursday nights, it was called Beer Night. And we'd have so much fun, but it was always a group of us. And I always had these strong feelings for Lindsay, but I didn't want to show them because I thought I'd ruin a friendship. So I told my aunt about it. And my aunt talked to him about it. And in March, March the 11th, we were engaged, and June 22nd, we were married. So Aww. it happened real fast. <laughs> Your aunt was quite the matchmaker, wasn't she? Oh, she was. She was. She's 95 years old now, but she she did a good job. <laughs> no kidding. She did a good job. And I know that UBC has also been a big part of uh, the lives of both of you as a couple together, too, and separately. Uh, Lindsay was chancellor from 2014 to 2020, but now you've you've decided to do something more than that. You've established this fund. Tell me about this. Well, we, um, one of the, first of all, I think we, Liz and I have been very fortunate in life. And uh, you, you kind of probably know about my, my business background. We've been very fortunate. And, you know, we do feel there's a responsibility to give back. And this was back in 2014 or 15. And we were trying to think about what we, could do. And we attended a, one of the great things about being chancellor at the university, particularly coming from a business environment, was being exposed to so many different points of view. So we went to a lecture by Murray Sinclair, who at the time was the uh, chair of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And uh, it inspired us both to say, hey, this is something we could really do to help um, some of the injustices and inequalities that Indigenous people suffer in, in, in Canada. So we got involved with uh, and, and helped establish the Centre for Excellence in Indigenous Health. And in terms of the philanthropy, that includes scholarships and bursaries to help Indigenous students uh, study in various uh, healthcare disciplines, nursing, medical, you name it. Okay. So that's kind of the background. Yeah. So, Elizabeth, then tell me more about this. Who can apply for this and what is the goal here? Well, the goal, I think, is to educate as many, to go out into the communities, uh, especially um centers that are you know not not in Vancouver but all over BC 
where indigenous people live um, and to encourage them to, especially young kids, uh, every summer UBC through this center takes children from all over BC who have shown an aptitude to, to learn and, and want to become somebody in the health field, um, in the health field, these children um, are taken to UBC for a two week period, it goes on all summer, different kids every two weeks, and they're taken to the science labs and oh, they, cool. they, can through, they can look through microscopes, they can put stethoscopes on, they're encouraged that yes, you can do this. And they go back to their communities, wherever that might be, and and that gives them that gives them hope and encouragement for 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 future study, and it, it's been very rewarding, very very rewarding. And to answer your specific question about who who and who can apply, uh, the easiest thing to do is to Google uh, UBC Center for Excellence in Indigenous Health, and you'll you'll find details there. Okay, I'm going to definitely tell people to do that. Listen, thanks to both of you for joining us this morning, telling us your story, and for letting everybody know about this. It's a great pleasure and happy Valentine's to you and everybody. Happy Valentine's. I hope you've got big plans. I had <laughs> happy Valentine's Day to you. That is Lindsay and Elizabeth Gordon. They are founders of the of UBC's Award for Future Health Professionals. And you heard Lindsay's advice there. If you Google uh, the Center for Excellence in Health, you can get all of the information. It's a great opportunity for some young people out there for sure. This is Mornings with Simi. Not teaching their children, not to do This is not some kind of a theater or a carnival. Oh boy, that was Richmond Mayor uh, Malcolm Brody. Pretty upset last couple of nights. It's been very contentious at Richmond City Council. And they have voted to support the idea of a supervised drug consumption site at Richmond General Hospital. Now look at it doesn't mean it's happening. It just means that council has voted seven to two to support the idea of Vancouver Coastal Health taking a look at whether or not it would be helpful or feasible. And yet that was enough to get many residents in Richmond upset enough to, you know, push back. So we wanted to find out why. Joining us now is Kay. Kay is a concerned Richmond resident. Kay, thank you so much for being here this morning. Thank you for having me on your show. Now, Kay, a lot of people are wondering, what is going on that has people so worked up? What happened? It just went into chaos. I believe the uh, proposal went to council, and it was so fast that people didn't have a chance to to um, figure out what, what what the proposal was all about. And so it just kind of manifested into something bigger. And I know you have been also kind of talking about this publicly. What has you concerned about this? Uh, the having at the hospital and normalizing drugs, and uh, I believe that it it's the wrong approach. We should actually be um, doing more in recovery. Now let's talk about you know your close association with this as well, because like you know what it's like when addiction impacts a family, don't you? It's devastating. You lost yeah. your brother. I lost my brother in 1998. And what did you see? What was happening to him? Um, well, first of all, we were brought up to... My mom told us never to do drugs. But my brother fell into trying it and liking it. 
and uh, it was 10 years of absolute hell, and he died. And what had happened? What happened to him? I'm so sorry about that. What happened to him during that time with his kind of descent into the addiction? What happened to his life? It, it was in total turmoil. It was jail. It was eight overdoses. It was um, police. It was everything. My mom. I don't know how she ever got through it. It was devastating for the family. Now, that was a long time ago. Like, 1998 was before, I think, thinking had kind of changed on this. Do you think that anything would have helped him? Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure, because um, addiction is very, very hard. So I'm, I'm not sure. Recovery, you have to be clean for so many times, so many, so many, so many days, or you have to be clean to go into these recovery houses when he actually, it was in 1998. I don't know how it is now you have to be clean. Right. And, and, and heroin, you know, and it was the, was the drug of uh, the day in, in the 90s, and many of his friends actually died of heroin in those days. And so it's like the same cycle right now with fentanyl. Many of the young people are dying of fentanyl. Like it was an epidemic in, in the yeah. days, in the, in the 90s. Now I get your concern, Kay, when you hear about this kind of coming, potentially coming to your community. I get why people are worried. But would it help, do you think, to have a place to go where the fentanyl is not going to poison them? Or at least that there would be a health professional there in case something bad did happen? No, I, I believe there needs to be a bigger picture. Like if you giving them drugs just to keep them alive and drugs um, is 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 just a band aid. There needs to be recovery. But how do you get them to do recovery when they don't want when they're not ready for it at that point? As you said, they have to be clean, right? So how do you how do you get to that point? I I don't know. I I you know I think we're handling things wrong is that there's, there's the criminal aspect of the drugs here. And if we got, we went after the drugs, of the drug dealers and the triads and all that kind of stuff, perhaps that's a better way of doing it. Um, taking the access out of the market. Um, it's, it's, it's big. It's really big. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, like I have a, I have a, I, I picked my grandson up from school. Um, and then, you know, there was, there was a shooting, and it was it was it was drug related. I don't pick them there up here, there anymore. You know, like I can see that there's a lot of bad things about what drugs are doing to people. There, you know, oh, tons of bad things. What do you think would have helped your brother? Um, uh, I I don't know. Like my dad died, and so he couldn't cope, and he saw everybody doing it. And he thought it would make him happy. And that first high, apparently, is, is a really good high. And you're always searching for that high after. So he became addicted, even though we were told not to do it. Yeah. And just I'm thinking, like, would, how would your brother have gotten into recovery? Like, was it, you said he went to jail, too. So, like, nothing seemed to convince him. Well, I think that's many cases with many addicts. It's, it's a vicious cycle. 
and getting it out is, is not a quick fix. It, it takes a long, long time for recovery. So do we and wait? Like with heroin, I heard it was only 5% of people that actually get off. I mean, that's, it could, could have changed, but what, would, what is the percentage of fentanyl? Right. So do we wait for people to be ready for recovery? You want them to go after the people who sell the drugs, but won't, won't there always be somebody who is willing to sell these drugs? I, I, yeah. Well, the, the, yeah, where's the conscience of those people selling the drugs? Yeah. I, I, it's, I, I, it's about how them, do you get but they them? don't realize the harm they're doing to people. But the people are making the choice. So you're worried that this having a supervised consumption site, not that they're doing it in Richmond, but they're thinking about it. You feel this is just a step on the wrong road. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, I've only got one. I'm only one person. Uh, there was there's tons of people that are for it and there's people, tons of people that are against it. But then I looked at the um, Richmond News. It had t- over 20,000 people that were opposed to it. Yeah. And and it was 91% of people that were opposed by the Richmond News poll. Um, I don't understand how, how they could have just approved it. They could have just rethought it and, and pro- but probably they have more. They have, to be fair, they haven't approved it, okay? It's not actually happening. They're just, they are just thinking about it. Mm-hmm. I know, but they should have actually uh, had open houses or public consultation before they even considered this. You know, what does the public feel about this? I think that it's so, it's a sense of desperation, though, don't you think, Kay? Because I don't think health officials know any better than any of us about what's absolutely going to work. It's just a matter of, like, trying things. Uh, I believe they could have done a better job. Okay. All right. Well, listen, Kay, thank you so much for joining us to talk about it this morning. I appreciate that. Thank you so much, Simi. That is Kay. Kay is a concerned Richmond resident, feels like they need to talk more about how we got into this point before we talk about a supervised injection site in Richmond. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com.